Hello all, David Oakes here. I hope you're all safe and well. Right, I've been making this Natural History versus Arts crossover podcast for well over a year now, and numerous guests have taken time to recommend their favourite pieces of fiction. Yet, to date, I have failed to interview a novelist. So, without further ado, this is Tim Piers, and this is Trees A Crowd. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. Whether bookworm or earthworm, I get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. This week I'm in Oxford, home to the world's second oldest university, punting enthusiasts and the most complete remains of the unfortunately extinct dodo. But I've come here to speak to novelist Tim Piers. There's a question. So I've read your name a million times, but no one ever told me how to pronounce your surname. And it could be Piers <laughs> or Piers. But it's Piers, isn't it? It is Piers. Well okay. Done. You got it right. So that's the, my you. first hurdle covered. <laughs> yeah. Does anyone ever introduce you as Tim Pears? Often, yeah. Really? Often, yeah, yeah. Because as you say, it could be either. Yeah, most people say Pears probably the first time. Oh, great. Um, but it's certainly Pears. If people have heard of the singer Peter Pears, sure. they, they'll they usually say Pears. But they make the link. Yeah. Not because of some kind of nominative determinism where they go, well, he writes about natural history, therefore... It should be the pears version rather than the peers. I don't know. Maybe that's something to do with it. I don't know. Never thought of that. Anyway. All right. I'll give you the rest of your introduction. Uh, Tim. Tim grew up in Devon, a county which features prominently in a number of his 10 novels. His debut novel won the Hawthornden Prize. He's been shortlisted for the Ondaatje Prize and the Impact Award. His novel In the Land of Plenty was adapted into a TV series for the BBC. The Times compared him to Balzac. The New York Times compared him to Hardy. And he's just published the final book in his West Country trilogy. Hello, Tim, and welcome to Trees A Crowd. Hi, David. Thank you for inviting me. You just made me realise that you, you you could have introduced that as David Oakes and Tim Pears talk about trees and plants, couldn't you? We should have done that. But anyway. Too late. We could have described yourself as a, some kind of chutney. That is your real name, is it? Well, my first name's actually Rowan. So I've Rowan got Oaks. Rowan Oaks. So I've got, oh, no. I've got a whole sort of arboreal heritage <laughs> rich within me, uh, which, is, which is fun. I love it. I mean, I... I've often wondered if that's why I've had such an affinity with the natural world. But um, I, I can't promise that that's true <laughs> at all. Um, well, my childhood was in the countryside, but that's not... Well, who knows? Who knows? Right, where should we start? I guess... OK, here's a fun thing. So I've been reading Landed, which is your fifth book? I think so, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And there's a wonderful section in it where Owen takes his children foraging and they're drinking out of... Uh, at cowslips and eating dandelions and all this kind of bits and bobs and so i was sort of going on a foraging sort of internet black hole last night and found an article that you wrote for the new statesman you're a forager i am yeah no i love foraging um i can't I, i'm not a gardener uh-huh. um i don't have a garden for i don't is that because you'd rather steal other people's fruits exactly. than grow your own <laughs> i think that's what it is i think it's growing up in devon where scrumping is a you know a big yeah. thing and uh no, I, I find it a really beautiful thing, finding the, the fruit. You know the book Food for Free by Richard Maybe? Mm-hmm. Um, that's been a kind of Bible of my life. I think I've got through about four copies over uh, the years. Okay. Um, I'm just going I, through Maybe's biography of um, Gilbert White. Oh, right. Which is okay. fascinating. He's brilliant. He, yeah. he is, yeah. But, yeah, no, I find it, I find it a, a fantastic thing to do, um, partly just the, the kind of sustenance of bringing in food from the outside and making it into this is something you did as children or? and not i don't think so no i think it's a kind of gradually growing adult thing um <laughs> but i also find it very beautiful kind of almost a spiritual I, I i i don't think i ever feel closer to nature than picking particularly blackberries well that that's which, that's what you said at the end of the article you said i feel closest to the divine picking blackberries in our local park right right i've okay. got quotes from very, you very good. <laughs> so this, this, this bit of paper here looks really big most of it's just blank literally it's just, that that's that's all my notes there was an incredible glut of blackberries how might i mention it in there actually about five years ago uh-huh. and um there were there was just so many i just couldn't stop picking them and it was great because I, you know, I, I love having blackberries on cereal in the morning. Sure. Our daughter, who was at home then, um, she loved making 
blackberry and banana smoothies and my wife makes really great jam but I kept getting more and more blackberries until we had so many so she had to make she had blackberry fool you know blackberry crumble but everything and then I think maybe either she got fed up with with that or Blackberry's she everything. thought I she, it would be good to give me a project and she said you've got to make blackberry wine and she went off and got she got Demi John's all the kind of wine making kit sure. and I kept trying to explain to her that I'm really not a scientist <laughs> not, you know I was useless at chemistry at school and, and that was like 40 years ago sure. I knew it would be a failure uh, but anyway I, I, I set about it and um, I think I got the temperature wrong or the quantity of some did you keep it in your airing cupboard I always imagine like sort of home brewing <laughs> kits sitting there next to sort of pants and towels I think you're right I think it did <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it was a complete it was, well, I made like 12 bottles, you know, I was very happy, looked fantastic colour, you know, mm. really deep purple. And then when I opened it, when it said you should first try it, it was just basically blackberry vinegar. And it was just total failure. Well, so, maybe it'll get better with age. I've got one left. I gave the, the others all to relatives for Christmas. That's very kind of you. It was. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't really complain, could they? I mean, you know. Uh, so, yeah, i got one left, which maybe it will. If age. the podcast goes well, we can open it up and see everything. Good idea. Um, so you grew up in Devon, not too far right. away from where I interviewed Harry Barton. Yeah, which is interesting. So, yeah. where what was your childhood like? What was it? Was it? I mean, this is the weird thing. So, talking to a novelist, I feel like I indirectly know probably quite a lot about your life experience, but it's sort of tying up what's actual and what's uh, fictional. Right. So, sort of take me back. And it's a very. Uh, it's such a strange thing, being a novelist, because, of course, you mine your, your life and mm-hmm. you mine the lives of those around you, but it's not a representation of, the, of them. So, sure. it, it, you know, everything is sort of transplanted, transposed into, into a, a fictional realm, sure. if you like. So, uh, anyway. No, my... do, you, do you ever feel like you share too much? Because I, I share quite a lot of personal anecdotes on this podcast and often go, well, that's that one shared, can't do that one again. <laughs> um, I mean, from reading your books, there are sort of certain sort of pictures that are repeated, I would suggest, rather than experiences. Right, right. There's the mushrooms in Landed that they turned up in something else, I think. There's a mushroom bit in The Horseman, isn't there? Quite possibly. (laughs) No, you're right. Of course, there are are certain little things. I mean, I I realised at one point in my first five novels, there's there's a, a dog. Uh-huh. You know, which is kind of plays quite an important role, and and a part of that was because I love dogs and you know have an affinity with them, but it was also I think some kind of subconscious idea that I wanted to put a dog, knowing that some people would think a dog can't play a significant role, sure. you know, in a in a story of human beings, uh, Lassie, and well, uh, but no, so, some people could relate to it, and some people yeah. couldn't. If they couldn't, then you know it wouldn't be for them. Well, I think that's one of the wonderful... I mean, I'm, I'm a rider. I've spent a lot of time on horses. This is a wonderful sort of divergence we're going on. Um, and reading your West Country trilogy, it's wonderful how I think it's accessible to those who don't. Um, uh, do you ride? Is that something that you've done in your past or is it all just research? Well, um, I grew up with uh, a mother and two sisters who all rode. Okay. okay. They were all keen riders, had their own ponies and stuff. And are we talking Thelwell sort of pony school or are we talking just roaming wild bareback on the moors? Or a mixture um, of the two? A mixture of the two, I think, probably. But a little bit of kind of Jim Carners and okay. all that kind of stuff. But I was terrified of them. And I was I was interested in either playing sports mm-hmm. or just, you know, wandering and... and uh, looking, you know, wandering around the countryside, really looking for bird's nests and things like that. So I thought they were, you know, these these basically animals whose main aim in life was to entrap young lads to their hindquarters and kick them. Sure. Um, so in the whole of my childhood, I probably only groomed, you know, fed, rode those horses maybe ten times. Okay. Um, Did you ever get kicked? Do you think it's an actual fear or...? An abstract one. No, I think I definitely... Well, no, I, I, I got kicked out. Uh-huh. I think I moved out of the way quickly. But anyway, uh, but, so, but then when I got the idea for the trilogy and I thought, you know, I was building it up and I realised that the, the story was building up, the relationship between this boy, Leo, who is the son of a, 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 a ploughman on a farm and 
the girl Lottie, who's the only child of the aristocrat who owns the whole estate that this farm is on, mm-hmm. um, would their, their friendship would develop through a shared love of horses. Sure. Him through because he wants to work with them like his father, and he has his what we'd call a horse whisperer, I guess nowadays, mm. um, and she through riding them. And I thought, well, will I be able to do this? You know, how, how's it going to be if I'm remembering my childhood? But actually, what I found was that that very limited experience in youth, in adolescence, um, I think meant that when I started describing these two children and mm. their, 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 what they were doing with their horses, the horses, kind of the smells, you know, and the feel of a horse and, and, the, and the beauty of a horse in motion and, you know, this muscled flanks rippling as they move, it, it was there, you know? And, you already I, had the language deeper, didn't you? yeah. And it's and and I, I mean I think there's there's must be a kind of reality to that that what we what we perceive in our adolescence is when we're kind of that's when we're most open to the world sure. kind of coming in and and therefore becomes a formative can, element if you will yeah yeah there were some wonderful books in, I've got them written down notes for horse owners by Captain M Horace Hayes <laughs> the manual of horsemanship by the British Horse Society. The Pony Club Annual, nineteen fifty. <laughs> one of the, the nicest things about reading your books is there's often a bibliography at the back where you get to sort of see where you've where tangents have gone and your mind has sort of taken you through the journey of creating a, 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 or recreating a historic natural world, which I've really enjoyed. Anyway, so Devon and horses, mother, two sisters. What, what was it like? It was a very happy childhood. I think of earlier part of it. Um, and then it kind of fell apart in 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 my kind of adolescence. Um, our mother left home, and I had to go into hospital for some operations on my hips. Uh-huh. So uh, so I was in hospital for quite a time. Fell behind at school, um, and lost whatever dreams I had of playing uh, sports. International footman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that all fell away. Uh, and um, and I and I kind of was in. I lived in a kind of state of depression um, for some years, and it was only later on. So, and 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 like you know, like like many of us when we're growing up and we start engaging with the outside world, the world we've been living in just seems so limited, and mm-hmm. you know our sights are set on a, a kind of far horizon. We look, life is elsewhere. Life is elsewhere to be lived, isn't it? And we kind of leave, and then again, I guess it's a kind of quite normal process but in my late 20s I went back to the village that I'd come, grown up in mm-hmm. and I kind of just saw it like for the first time and, and, and started writing a story set there and it was almost like the scales fell from my eyes and I thought my god what an amazing place to grow up this was and this is your first book yeah my so first book was set in this that's right yeah. and it's set in this village in the Tin Valley yeah so it's, it's fun, I have a funny you know, do you see what I mean? I had a kind of funny relationship that I think when I was there, there were there were some wonderful things about growing up in, in the countryside, but I didn't really appreciate them at the time. No, I think I can I can respond to that. I don't think it's quite taking it for granted. I think it's just you were never told to... I mean, certainly I wasn't actively forced to be outside, neither was I forced to be inside. It just yeah. was part of it, and you, you go away and you work in the city or whatever, and then you, then you look back at it. Not rose-tintedly, but you start to appreciate the, the value of it more. I right, think. yeah. I mean, I grew up in the New Forest, so yes. not too dissimilar sort of to Dartmoor in that kind of area. But... And were you the same as me that we had, I think the kind of phrase for it is benign neglect. I mean, we basically could go out of the door in the morning and come back, you know, f- for a bite to eat at some point. I must and... be careful what I say because my mum will listen to this. <laughs> but yeah, no, there was... Actually, <laughs> there, I think one of the things I always remember is that I think it was about the age of 16... Um, she basically just gave me 20 quid in her phone number and said, look, go and have some fun. <laughs> You're such a boring kid. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, no, the front door was always basically unlocked and there was, we lived right on the edge of uh, this sort of old country lane that went off into the middle of nowhere. And I, yeah, there was, there weren't rules. I don't remember. I think she probably would have preferred it if I went out even more, to be honest. Right. Yeah, so in terms of your, do you remember anything particular about the natural world through growing up and such? Was it, was it always just... I think... Uh... I think, I mean, I have certain particular memories. Like I got one of our mother taking us one evening to see, to a badger set and watching these badgers and in a, in a wood, uh, you know, it's a very magical mm-hmm. thing. Um, 
But on the whole, I think it was much more um, just being in it, you know, being in nature. And, and uh, in a way, although I have written to a certain extent, certainly in, in Landed, you, you mentioned that book, um, most of my other novels are, are, are much more to do with human relationships, often in the urban world. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the reason, I think, why, even though the, my best writing is almost always people in landscape, and and I think I shied away from it because I've, uh, I, I think I lack a classificatory gene, if there is such a thing. That I, you know, I read books about the natural world that are written really by scientists or people who combine science and and humanities in their in their sensibility, and I I don't. I just, um, you know, I, ca- I can't sensorial. Or... Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's much more that, and I th- and I didn't think that that was allowed one to really write about it you know and it was only the penny really only dropped when i came to write this trilogy and i thought i've got to see the world how my characters see it uh-huh. leo and lottie and neither of them or well she she's sorry she 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 does have that gene sorry lottie does have that she becomes a vet a, a veterinary surgeon yes. herself and she's fascinated in the anatomy of animals yeah. even well, he as a brings child. all the skulls to he brings yeah. her skeletons of, of mm. animals which she then studies and but he doesn't. He's he's an he's a, uh, an uneducated boy, and he knows that the natural world, really, just to to especially once he leaves home, as a child, um, he apprehends the world, for, and looks at it very closely. And I feel that I do that without. So are you Leo? Then? Or, is that you? Or not, he's certainly not me, but certainly want to be. yeah, yeah. That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> it, it was the thing that struck me when when reading that first of the three was the pacing, was the fact that it's seasonal, that it goes through, uh, I guess, sort of a Christian harvest calendar, and you sort of follow the, the turning of the weather, the, the arrivals of new animals, the disappearance of others. The, the whole chapter about the slaughtering of the pig is just brilliant. And the fact that you've seen that pig grab. The, the whole pacing of it felt very much like... Um, have you seen any of the sort of slow TV that they've been doing lately? There was a, a Christmas one with the Sumi uh, Eskimos going over the North Pole and how they've got three hours of daylight. And it was just this sort of gentle pacing of a real world. And I think the way that Leo watches it felt very much to me like that, something taking each moment as it comes and not knowing that there was one specific thing to respond to, but was just the whole landscape, I guess. Yeah, no, I think that it's one of the things that I was... I did a lot of research, mm-hmm. um, of course, in because it, it set a hundred years ago, and it's the first book in particular, as you say, it's a lot to do with the agricultural practices. It's mm-hmm. really, and I and, and I and I did a lot of research, and I read a lot of uh, memoirs by old men, one or two women, in, in, that were written in the nineteen seventies. You know, and put out like self-published or your little presses, and were, were describing their lives as young people working on the land, and it, I just found it so interesting. Particularly ones working with horses, it was just so interesting in the the detail of their lives and the pace of their working lives, how hard they worked, of course, and and, and I thought, well, if I find that so interesting maybe it's possible to take my time over it in the novel mm-hmm. uh, and readers will be fascinated by it and go with that. Why do you think these farmers, horsemen, why do you think they wrote it down at the time? Why did they make these records of their... They made them later. Um, well, I think a lot of people, when you know, as they get older, then they, they look back. And I think particularly the people who work with horses, one of the things that really struck me was that as you know, uh, uh, you know, during the First World War, a lot of horses went to France, mm. um, and and didn't well, come back. And they didn't come back. And in the years after the war, the tractor kind of came onto the land, and um, horses kind of disappeared. And but a lot of it meant that a lot of people were who had been working with horses then lost that relationship, and and they kind of spent the rest of their working lives. In mourning for it, you know the, the the relationship with this other animal, however hard it was, and how much easier it was to just go and turn the machine on mm-hmm. and drive off into the fields. It was a kind of there was a kind of grief underlying. Do all you think these. that means that their accounts 
whether subconsciously or not, have a certain romanticism to them? Romanticism, I guess, um, we can see it like that, but I don't think they were necessarily... I'm thinking back now, and I was reading them, I don't think they were necessarily, you'd say, they were romantic, exactly, but they were simply saying this is how it was, and, yeah. Have you found that through through doing so much research and writing so much about agricultural life and... Do you find that you have a greater sympathy for the farmer than you did before? Do you think they deserve more respect now than they had before? Like, what, what, is, what is your relationship with them? Are you, are you able to keep removed and see it as a... Um, I think I've always had enormous respect for farmers and the farming life and have watched in my lifetime the kind of removal, the kind of alienation of most of us from where we get our food from. Mm-hmm. And also the pressures on farmers to go with intensive um, agriculture in terms of the kind of pesticides and so on that they put on the land. And also the, the what's called factory farming, which I think is shouldn't have the word farming in it at all. No. So, you know, I have huge, huge respect for farming. I, I mean, as a, the farmers in general, but not for not the for... way that it's gone you know in recent years i was i've just got back from california and did a drive up through bakersfield and you drive through a whole host of food production sites where cattle are mass produced and really i haven't seen farming on that scale ever i don't think other than in documentaries and weirdly i'd just come back from talking to a small holding in yorkshire as well a few months before it couldn't be more different. This was yeah. no pesticides, no fungicides, no anything, and just a very, very small herd of Irish Dexter cattle. Anyway, wow. it's such a weird thing, isn't it? We were talking earlier on about, you know, that what difference people can make to the kind of environmental catastrophe that we're living through. And there are obviously there are so many fantastic initiatives happening. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot more and more organic farmers, smallholders, yeah. small enterprises, which is wonderful yeah do you think that's something that you might want to explore in another book are you working on at the moment um i think if actually i'm not saying that this trilogy is is good but it's the best that i can do so i kind of (laughs) say stop now done yeah i've kind of yeah yeah i think my kind of engagement with you know i spent a lot of time thinking about and just looking at humans in nature and and i think i've done as much as i can and there are other things i I want to do (laughs) so wonderful yeah um had you been planning it a while before you started if that's the case if it was something it is this Uh, not really no it's a weird thing you know writing the novels like it's a perfectly valid question to say where did you get the idea where did the idea come from you know Mm -hmm. that kind of question and it's very easy to bullshit uh, and just, you know, say, oh, well, I thought, you know, I was working towards this or working towards that. And really, it just kind of comes and builds up at some, you know, part of one's subconscious. And and then, you know, you apply your intellect to think, what could I do with this? What could I... So I can't know. It just kind of came. Sure. Elements came together. And the, One of the things I particularly liked, I can't remember which book it was from, but there was a reference to the relationship between you and a spider's web and how one element of the natural world uh, made apparent another element of the natural world in the same way that someone reading a book about some fictional character's experiences can illuminate something in yourself. Do you find that through the act of creation you have been able to really recognise elements of yourself over the years? Like, I guess that's a huge sort of existential question. There's a sort of... There's, certainly through reading your work, I have found myself reimagine aspects of my childhood, right. which I found right. equally as stimulating as reading the book. And there's the whole chapter in the service station. I went on a whole element about in landed, which made me sort of just remember every single time my parents had driven me to a service station, and all the weird experiences you have around them because you're always surrounded by these odd fields which always have an odd cow there, <laughs> the, a lonely sort of moth-eaten horse over there. <laughs> Yeah, all of these things sort of came flooding back simultaneously. I don't, I don't know. One of the things that I, this doesn't, I don't know. It doesn't answer what you just asked, but you know, I was thinking about coming here, meeting you, and something that I find about um, writing, which I don't think is mentioned very often, is that I often feel it's quite akin to acting. Mm-hmm. That actually, one is trying, to, one is 
I mean, maybe not doing Shakespeare, but but more kind of working up from improvisation and you know discussions and helping as an actor to create a character. That that one is trying to 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 come up with a character and then to build that character and then on the page to perform. So my performance of Leo is happening on the page rather than on the stage. Sure. Um, and I find that sort of that that process is is very interesting you know really trying to how did you find get it? out of oneself sure you know how did you find it then when your work was adapted into a television series when you saw the performance that you had given as one of your characters to then be reimagined by a screenwriter a director an actor um that's interesting yeah you're right it, my second novel it was made into a tv series um well so it's not that I think I am the person. So I can, you know, I can imagine a character in one of my novels, and I can, you know, have a kind of vague idea of what he or she might look like and mm-hmm. talk like and so on. But when when we saw that series, when when it was shot, when when it was sorry, when it was all edited and everything, the producer sent me copies to mm-hmm. look at before it's transmitted, and um, my wife and I were sat down to watch it, and we got to about episode three. And she said, look, she stopped it. And she said, if you don't stop moaning, you know, I, I'm just not going to watch anymore. Because I, you know, was I, I was like, he's too tall, you know. Yeah. She wouldn't have that accent. Um, so I, I kind of shut up. And then, but I had to kind of go through that, you know, as the author. And yeah. then when it was actually transmitted on BBC and I watched it and having got rid of those kind of misgivings and I was able to enjoy it and just really enjoy seeing these actors embody the characters that I'd originally come up with was great privilege, wonderful. I think my friend Bob Pugh was in it. Ah, brilliant. And great. He he is I spent quite a lot of time playing snooker with him in a in a Belgian snooker hall. Really? As you do. We were both pretending to be um stuck within the walls of the roses at the time. And this was before we both had our heads cut off or were drowned in vats of Malmsey wine. Um one of the things that because sort we of go through all of your books is is Christianity, is faith. Um, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. Are you a Christian? No. But um, <laughs> I like you, I, I don't know if you realise, but we're both sons of clergymen. Are we? Yeah. So my dad was the priest in charge of these villages in the Tin Valley. Oh, OK. So, yeah. But your dad was a canon. He right? was a canon. He was a non-residentiary canon of uh, Salisbury Cathedral. Yeah. And now lives down in, in the Purbex, which is lovely. Um, I'm going to see him next week, actually. I, th- I tell you what I think I've inherited uh-huh, is yeah. is um, a belief in... Well, not inherited, but anyway, took on, took on board, that the search for meaning is the point of life. So I haven't necessarily come, discovered a particular, you know, faith. Mm-hmm. But... Um, There's but a respect the, for spirituality. Absolutely, yeah, very much so, yeah. That way you're kind of here to find out why we're here, you know. Um, but then my dad was kind of typical, it was a kind of you know, there's so much, such a kind of range of belief or almost non belief within the Christian church mm-hmm. or within the Anglican church. So he's very much a kind of someone living with his own doubts, yes. And he was someone who's sort of very much gave to my sisters and I the freedom to find our own. You know, way he's in sort of he thought once we'd attained a certain age, then you know it's up to us. I don't know about you. Was it There's does that a, charm with you? I would agree almost wholeheartedly with that. Um, I think he respected within me a, a desire to question and to probe and to see what it meant for me and a sense of community, I guess. But I, I'm not religious. I uh, he would like it if I was confirmed. I'm not confirmed. And yet the, the the Christian faith is something that amazes me. I wrote my dissertation at university on representations of Jesus in film, <sighs> looking at how he had been adapted over time into meaning what people needed him to mean. What a great subject. Um, so I looked at one film from the 60s, one from the 70s, one from the 80s, one from the 90s, each from a different country. And so what did Pasolini's Jesus in the 60s in Italy need to be, whether it be a magician or a holy man or a normal person? And what did Scorsese's... Uh, 1980s, and that was the thing. Anyway, I I could talk about that literally for a long time, but I but I won't. I think that's so. The reason why I ask you is 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 that faith 
in, in pretty much all the books of yours that I've read seems to pop up, if not becomes a sort of driving force for someone. It's a good sort of shorthand, I guess, to give someone respect and an agenda. Mm. Mm. I mean, Owen certainly mm. has mm. that in Landed. Leo as well, I guess, has this, his obsession with Harvest is undeniable. Yeah. I, well, I think I, with Leo, mm-hmm. I thought he's a boy who he doesn't attend to school. He really wants to be outside. Um, so even when he's forced to be in school, he's looking out of the window, so to speak. But he also goes to church every Sunday. And being an attentive person, he's actually being given, you know, the King James Bible every week in the, in the, and given the sermons from the priest. And so that would be a very, very vital part of the kind of matrix through which he would see the world and, sure. and, and see the possibility of meaning in the world as well as a natural world. Do you, so this is kind of where my question is going, is do you think that he found a way to acknowledge the natural world through faith because the Christian faith certainly is full of animal imagery, whether it's the Lamb of God or donkeys and Mary and Joseph or fictional Bonacons coming up out of the Old Testament and, and, and the like. Do you think that's why he could appreciate it? If you have animals, you can follow the seasons and they can link to uh, to Easter and birth and rebirth. And... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, he he has that. and it, But also, in a way, he's part of the kind of almost, almost the last generation to have that. You know, uh-huh. where most people growing up in an English village would have had the same experience. Yeah. That, you know, that kind of faded away through the 20th century, didn't it? Uh, Which is ironic, considering we've made so many machines and so many scientific advancements. You would have thought that we would have had more time to engage in the spiritual as we've been freed up away from the hard labour of agricultural life. But alas, yeah, no. Yeah. There's one beautiful bit in, I think it was landed, when Leo, uh, when Owen's grandfather, or you know, his grandmother refers to his grandfather being buried with uh, some wool so that at the pearly gates he's allowed off for not having gone to church on Sundays because he was obviously out with the sheep all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which I thought was a yeah. beautiful little little link that tied everything up together. Yeah. It's a very... Uh, again, sorry, this is to, to digress a no, bit, no, but, you know, I, I find it... You know, we're talking about the natural world. That's why you're here. That's why I've written these books. And um, something I struggle with a lot is I don't know whether... Who I'm writing for, I don't know. Because a couple of weeks ago, I had to go into town. We're here in Oxford, right? And I had to go into town. There's, a, there's quite a big new shopping centre in the middle of town. And I had to go and get something from John Lewis there So I, on a Saturday. So I cycled into town, got this thing. And the shopping centre was crammed, okay, thousands of people. And I came home and then I took the dogs like... I I I walk our dogs in the local park every morning, mm-hmm. but it's nice the at the weekend. Park. Sorry, the Blackberry Park, the Blackberry Park indeed. And it's but it's nice at the weekend to go a bit further afield. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a lovely wood near Oxford, and it's a Forestry Commission wood, mm-hmm. and um, and there's a car park there, and people go there and walk at the weekend. But then uh, there's a lane, and across the lane there's a smaller wood which is also Forestry Commission, and no one ever goes there. Okay, um. So I, I, I went, took the dogs out there and had a good walk around for maybe an hour and a half, two hours, and didn't see a single other person. But I saw lots of deer, mm-hmm. you know, some birds, and the dogs went wild, and I was so happy. And I, and I just thought, my, you know, it, it's really interesting that, like, you know, if you took 100 people, a sample of 100 people, and you say, what would you like to do this afternoon? Go to the shopping centre or go to a wood? And I guess 99 out of 100 would say, I'll go to the shopping, shopping centre, thanks. And who's to, you know, that's, that's, that's their experience. I, and I can't say they should be, you know, they should, it's better to be in the wood. I mm. mean, it's better for me, uh, but I don't know. And one would presume the, the readers of your books. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is that you hope there's at least, if there's 99% that go to the shopping centre, 1% that go for a walk in the, Commission Woods, you hope there's at least 1% of that 99% that 
who only want to go shopping but are more than happy to sit at home and get their fix of the natural world from reading your literature. <laughs> I mean, it is, there was an article in The Guardian recently about um, natural history podcasts and whether or not listening to nature or listening to the sounds of the outside world in any way gives you the cathartic hit that one needs from, from nature. I, I don't know, but it's certainly one of the reasons why I do this mm. is if not to get people up out of their armchairs to go outside then to at least get a bit of the outside to go inside with them. It's a, it's a really interesting question, isn't it? Yeah. In one of your podcasts, you were talking, I guess, with Harry about the, perspective, the changing perspective when you climb a mountain and how you, to see that the, the, the earth kind of fall away beneath you. And, and I think Harry's saying, isn't it, because the fact that one's tired, one is using oxygen, mm-hmm. and that kind of vivifies one's how one sees the world literally you know and you say you you know that it's it's an amazing it is a a difference you can't they're two different experiences aren't they but on the other hand you know watching a film shot by a drone swooping over a mountain could also be pretty amazing both of value literally four days ago i was at eleven thousand feet in sequoia national park i hadn't seen i went out for it was a 24 mile walk and i didn't see a single human being for all 11 hours of it and wow I was completely off the beaten track. That there were no tracks. I was clambering around in Sequoia. Wow. Um, David, fantastic. Uh, which was amazing. But I, I would be lying. I was very relieved to see a, another human footprint at one stage. And there was one man-made cairn that I saw. And I was just to know that I wasn't completely disassociated from the human world was... <laughs> quite comforting interesting um, which was something that I was surprised about spending most of my time walking in um, in the Lake District or the Highlands or, or places close to home to be somewhere so far away yeah. where there are bears wow. and that, that it was genuinely <laughs> I've never had that fantastic wow presumably you had a compass with you or... I had a compass I, I was prepared um, but it was it was that thing of just going we, we sometimes think that familiarity makes us safe because we know what something is, we think that there's nothing going to affect our reality with it. So we get in our car and do our journey to work every morning and we think that we're going to be fine. I think going back to land that you have Owen in the car instant is something that he doesn't expect to happen and thinks he's perfectly safe. The irony is he is never more safer when he's sort of getting in touch with his the things that he learnt as an adolescent growing up on his grandfather's farm. He knows about camping and bivouacking and foraging and the natural world and he does feel safe in that place. I wonder if he removed from the Welsh countryside that he grew up in and moved him out to to California, whether or not that would he would still have that same safety or whether or not one's relationship with the land is restricted to the particular land within which they grow up. Mm. Are there any books that you've come across as a writer, um, as a novelist, that you have been moved in a way that you would like your readers to be moved when they read your work? Um, that's a good question. Yeah, um, there were there were novels that I read when I was younger that really, really moved me very powerfully. And certainly, I always wanted to um, to write books that would move people in the same way. Uh, I mean, one example would be John Irving's The Cider House Rules. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know that. Um, Turned into a film with Michael Caine a few years. That's back. right. Yeah. I haven't seen that film. I haven't. I Never tried. see a film. Of a book that you love. I, I completely think. agree. <laughs> I complete, and I spend most of my time being in adaptations of books. Oh, no, David. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, I, I literally, I, I accepted it. I did an adaptation of a book by Tan Tuan Eng called The Garden of Evening Mist. It was nominated for the book a few years back. And before I even read the script, I made sure I read the book so that at least I wouldn't have the script if it was bad ruin it. Whether or not I decided to do the job or not, it was at least I could have the book. And I agreed to do the film having read the book and then after I said yesterday in the film, read the script. And I was like, I really like the book and I know whoever does it is going to break it. So it might as well be me. <laughs> but yeah, so the cider house rules. Oh, do you know when I was, um, the, we were talking earlier, the, the TV series of, mm-hmm. of my second book, In a Land of Plenty. And um, I was invited to the set a couple of times. And one time I went and they were filming, they were filming a scene. I'm sure Bob Pugh was, was in it and Helen McCrory played his wife. And uh, but there was a chap playing the gardener, and I think he had a non-speaking role, but he certainly ended up as a non-speaking role. Let's say. <laughs> and uh, and he we've all had parts like that, I'm sure. 
and he and he's a lovely old chap and um and I got talking to him and he was telling me about his life and he said oh you you wrote the novel my marvelous marvelous novel of course I read the novel I wanted to really get into my character and you know it's a really small small role and um and he told me about his life he'd worked with Gil Good in the you know 60s and Olivier in the 70s and and he'd had a long long theatrical life and here he was in this TV series it was all very nice and then I went off to to have lunch and then I came before I left I was going to leave come back to Oxford after that and I thought I'll just go and have a last look at the set and this old actor who's playing the gardener was there as well and he'd obviously forgotten our conversation from an hour or two before and he said ah ah oh, yes you're the, you're the script writer he said damn fine script much better than the novel <laughs> so I put in my place by, by an actor there but oh, anyway you should have called him on it he's like actors just some rubbish we're just awful people <laughs> no you're not no you're great I love actors my best friends are actors um no but to me to be honest I mean yeah I the the kind of the cathartic experience of art is what I have always wanted to you know achieve, mm-hmm. and um, to be honest, it's, it's, it's I I think that I I think there are very few young readers of this trilogy. You know, it's kind of when I do book events, or maybe it's book events in general. I tend to look at the audience and we're pretty white-haired mm-hmm. audience. I've tried being a theatre actor. It's the same. Really? Yeah, it's, it's a monoculture. <laughs> it's doomed to fail. <laughs> it's, it's really sad, you know. It's really sad. But anyway, yeah. Um, people are happy to. I, I found there was a lot of elements of Hardy in the trilogy. And maybe it's because of the historical setting and the location. Did you read a lot of Hardy growing up? Have you reread them all recently? Um, or do you not want to be? compared to Thomas Hardy? Um, okay, there's, there's, there's about three questions there. I probably feel, when, if, if my work is compared to Hardy, probably I feel similar to how you feel. But you've got, you got some great reviews for your recent Hamlet, but I don't know if you've got any that said shades of, you know, mm-hmm. Nicol Williamson here or sure. Rory Kinnear. And how, how do you feel about that? I find that it's not really a review. I think it's someone trying to show that they've seen other productions of Hamlet. I think there's more... I think you should be able to use your vocabulary to express how you feel about something rather than relying upon shared experiences to be able to show how you respond to something. Right. That's what I think. Interesting. So, yeah, I ha- um, You know, it's completely natural when people are writing reviews, whether it's of a play or a book, you know, they're, they're reaching... They want to give the reader an idea of what it's akin to. So I can understand that. Um, but actually there are influences, um, very strong influences, I think, in on me in this trilogy. And But they're not... They're all American writers. Who? Um, Cormac McCarthy. Okay, sure. And um, Well, he had his trilogy as well, very definitely, didn't he? He did indeed. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, well, the first two books in it were fantastic. But... Um, you know what he did, he did this extraordinary thing as as well as well he did many different things he had this incredible kind of biblical apocalyptic authority in his writing oh it still does i should say he's still alive mm-hmm. um you know the great difference between literature and say film is commonly held to be that a novel allows the reader and therefore the the, the writer and therefore the reader into the minds of the protagonists mm-hmm. Um, whereas film, you unless you have a voiceover or whatever, you basically have people doing things and talking, you have speech. Uh, but what Cormac McCarthy did was to turn that on its head, and actually his novels just have people doing things and people talking. He doesn't take you into the consciousness of human beings. Um, and I just found as I got older, I've kind of... Uh, I met Cormac McCarthy at the, just as I was kind of thinking, getting a bit sick of my own self and thinking, why do I think I'm, I have a right to know what this character, even though I kind of created them, mm-hmm. I don't, would I have a, do I have a kind of insight into their interior world? Not necessarily. What happens when I actually say, this is who they are, this is what they're doing, and let the reader kind of bring their own 
ideas about what might be going on in their minds. So that was a huge influence. But because Cormac McCarthy was writing about in the American West, um, in this, you know, huge landscape and, and, Whereas I'm writing in the you know about the West Country, I thought I don't know if I can really do anything similar. But then I read another American writer called Kent Haruf, who uses the same kind of approach, but uh, uh, writing domestic stories okay. in small town America, which are very very beautiful, I think. And so, you know, I kind of those two writers gave me the freedom to go on the journey that I want to go on. And there's another writer, I must just mention, called Annie Prue. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bark stories and... Yeah. Um, and and she writes with just such vividness about the physical reality of working lives and, you know, particularly male, men's um, working lives that, I, yeah, I find her really inspiring. Yeah. So there are three questions that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Um, the first question is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? It's through the sequoias of California. <laughs> That's where I want to go right now. Yeah. yeah. No, I would. I, God, I, yeah. I don't think... I, I love America. I've been to America four times. And I don't, think I've, I, I don't know if I'll ever go again, really, unless I have a very, very good reason. But uh, I'd love to go there, yeah. I've never been to the West Coast. The na- national parks of America are possibly the greatest thing that America has going for it, which is sad that some of the protections are currently being wound back by the current president, which is a little bit disheartening. Yeah, to say the least, yeah. Um, Goodness me, yeah. So, no, I love it. I mean, but, I'm, you know, I love, I love Britain, you know. I, we go to Scotland pretty much every year, go to Wales quite a bit, um, and, and to the West Country. Uh, you know, I think it's... Do you find that you work when you're away or never no no I have to be shut up in my room in Oxford I mean I often you know I think I part of the kind of motivation the engine for writing this trilogy was kind of realizing that I couldn't actually live there again okay. um, because my wife's work is kind of like I've reached the age where I would like I'm thinking actually it'd be really nice to go back to Devon and you know live the rest of one's life pottering around i would certainly never write anything sure don't there um i don't think i'd leave the intellectual life behind in oxford and uh but it's not going to happen so i kind of gone there in the imagination fair enough um you could have a small holding out in the garden have a pig at the back (laughs) good yeah fatten it up get your scrumping back together and sort of feed it up on what you can find locally and then and then have a yearly slaughter yeah (laughs) I like it. It's a good. It's a good image. Yeah. Was that fun yeah. to write the slaughter episode in in the first book of your of your trilogy? Because it's, it's fun. It's, it's maybe fun not to read. Quite a word, it's though, so it? shocking. It's so, like you, you read you read you read this beautiful pastoral story, and then sort of for a chapter, it's just gore and re- the reality and hardship of fattening up this lovely sow. And <laughs> I did quite enjoy it, to be honest. You know, because it was something that almost every family did. Mm-hmm. You know. It's good to immerse oneself, you know, in that reality. So, yeah, yeah. Not tempted to do it, though. No way. <laughs> no, far too squeamish. Uh, second question. Uh, uh, should we colonise the moon? Should we colonise the moon? Mm-hmm. I can't... Why... Well, who's suggesting that? So it's your <laughs> no, idea. No, no it's, a, it's a question I've been sort of wanting to rework. It's, it's an interesting one. It's about... It's basically, should we live somewhere else? Do we have the right to move as a species do we have a right to colonize somewhere else whether it's the seas the moon another planet another country if you will um i guess what your question kind of you're kind of questioning the whole kind of idea of space travel right and uh, hypothetically potentially yeah um which i, I mean i personally have never been able to understand it at all i don't know just the idea of looking beyond the earth i just can't relate to that at all why on earth would we? Why don't we try and sort out what's happening here first? Mm-hmm. Have you seen Ali G talking to Buzz Aldrin? <laughs> no, I haven't. You must check it out, David. It's very, very funny. <laughs> and he's he asks he he asks in he says at one point, okay, do you think man will ever set foot on the sun? And Buzz Aldrin says, well, no, of course not. It's far it's far too hot. And and Ali G says. Um, yeah, but what if we went in the winter? <laughs> <laughs> so, 
anyway. No. I'll look it up. No, colonising. Um, the word colonise, I mean, it's a loaded question, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Colonise, you've used the word colonise. You're inviting a certain kind of answer, aren't you? That's a leading question. <laughs> um, I had an interesting discussion with uh, the curator of the Grant Zoolog- Zoological Museum um, and their current exhibition is all about the colonialization of collections. So the museum that has collected the exhibits because of its location and the time in which it was made means that there is a certain narrative placed upon the things that are there. So you can't look at the British Museum without looking at Britain's colonies of the time, whether it be through the Elgin Marbles or through other things that they're trying to, or having to give back. Facts, if they are facts, are always being presented to us through a certain lens, if you will. As with your books, this is one version of what farming could be. Is it what it all was? Certainly not. But it's it's something that has to be interpreted and enjoyed. The question is, is it best done within the context of knowing the narrative that we're placing upon it or by living outside it and just going, oh, aren't these pretty? Isn't that amazing that I've learned all of that about Mesopotamia? Mm. Um, mm. That's mm. the question. Mm. There was a great exhibition recently at the Pitt Rivers Museum mm-hmm. down the road. I don't know if you have you had, had a chance to go there. Mm-hmm. They've got the Natural History Museum and then behind it the Pitt Rivers, which is the Anthropological Museum. So they have all this f- f- wonderful stuff. And then they have a, 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 a side bit where they have um, contemporary exhibitions, smaller exhibitions, which are often responses to things within the collection. Sure. And there was one quite recently of... I can't remember her name, but she's a young Tibetan photographer. And I don't know about you, but I, you know, I am a sucker for those early colonial, I guess, um, people who, 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 who charted, who, who photographed, um, peoples in the, you know, early, late 19th century, early 20th century and, 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 uh, the people that it came across and this exhibition by the photographer, she, what she had done was, to get modern young Tibetans around the world, and get, and she did double portraits of them, one as they are now, and one dressed in traditional costume, mm-hmm. and uh, and so the the traditional costume one is kind of reflects these photos of early anthropologists, explorers, whatever, and then but then the one next to it shows them wearing you know a baseball cap earrings you know mm-hmm. holding a mobile phone and it, it's really it's it was brilliant it was a great juxtaposition which also you know made one question one's own romantic you know appreciation of these images yeah would you turn things back if you could i mean you you've spent a lot of time recently thinking about historic uh rural life mm. and it obviously resonates with you in terms of those tibetan photographs do you think there are elements of well, clearly, considering—I mean, you know—considering where we are, yeah. Now, I mean, since you say, it, I hadn't thought of that as being, you know. Although, I mean, I remember, I remember reading when I wrote my first book in the place of Fallen Leaves. There's a very eccentric grandmother of the main character, mm-hmm. the narrator of the novel, Alison. Her grandmother is kind of eccentric. And he says these funny things like, um, "The trouble is, we should never have replaced horses with cars." And, you know, Alison thinks she's eccentric. I thought she was eccentric. She's kind of based on my grandmother. Mm-hmm. But then once I've actually finished the book, I thought I went through it and I thought I agree with everything she says, <laughs> you know, this kind of nutty stuff. And yeah, look where the hell we are. Obviously, you know, the acceleration of the industrial society that we have created has been a disaster there's something wonderful about that book in the way that in, industry stalls basically and just by the nature of people going on a strike everyone's forced to sort of live with the realities of of life as we're nearing another brexit deadline that i think a lot of people are wondering about what's going to stop working what's going to stall again and a lot of bad things will probably happen but also the reality of living with an inflicted hardship that people have got accustomed not to having might be an interesting thing. What reality will we be faced with if the country's infrastructure stops working instantaneously on the 31st of October? Interesting, David. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that uh, 
you know, one of the kind of what they call the scare stories of a hard Brexit is the idea that um, house prices will crash. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'd vote for that. <laughs> you know, it's desperate times. We need house. You know, yeah. so maybe yeah, there may could be there could be lots of other things. But I mean, one of the one of the weird things that it, don't you think that in our time the huge the two huge things the two huge political movements at the moment are Extinction Rebellion and Brexit. Mm-hmm. The and it's almost like they alternate in you know in, in in the news. But they never come together. What are the you know the environmental costs of, of Brexit doesn't it's not really discussed, is it, very much? Interesting. Have you, have you come across that? Well I spoke to a guy called Bryce Stewart who's a marine biologist based up at York University. And he was one of, I think, 11 people who, when Brexit was first voted for, set up a body to research the environmental impacts of of Brexit. And he was there as the marine expert. And there was one from an agricultural perspective and from air, everything that was, right. was all looked into. And there is a paper that can be read uh, that looks at the environmental impact of Brexit. It's not a positive read. Right. <laughs> um, and I, I wouldn't want to paraphrase it, but it is there are very real concerns about what will need to be done in order to get over that political hiccup that will have direct impacts upon the environmental world. Right. Um, final question. Um, if you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? God damn it. Um, that is such a difficult question, David, to throw at somebody. Last question. <laughs> that is... Uh, I, <laughs> I think I needed a week's uh, <laughs> notice for that one. We can cut out the long thinking pause. Oh, good. I'll give you a day. I'll leave the microphone set up and we'll come back in a week. <laughs> Do you want another coffee while I think about it? Yeah, sure. Okay. God damn it. Um, it's worth for the record saying that we just had a 15 minute break so you could think of something and you still haven't come up with anything. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Humiliated yeah. you on the record. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so qu- a question: if if anyone's going to read one of your books, which one should they start with? Um, they should read The Horseman. Okay, the first part of the trilogy, because then, having read it, they'll want to read two more, won't they? <laughs> no, I think it's a be- my best book. Yeah, The Horseman. You think it's better than the other two? Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I think you just put people off reading the other two if they've enjoyed the first one. <laughs> Um, thank you very much for talking, Tim. It's been great. hugely appreciated. Thank you, David. It's been great. Thank you to Tim for taking the time to talk to me. I cannot recommend his books enough. And as he says, The Horseman is a great place to start. I'm going to leave you now with a voice message I received from Tim a few weeks back, which is particularly fitting for the blog entry I've just written to accompany this episode, which is live now at treesacrowd.fm. So thank you for listening. This was Trees A Crowd, and this is Tim Piers. Hello, David. Um, it's Tim here. You asked this very difficult question. What animal would you, what extinct animal would you want to bring back to life? And I I find it really difficult and really painful, actually, to even try to think about that question. Um, I prefer to think about animals that exist now and can be saved from extinction in the future. There's a zoologist called Fritz Volrath who lives here in Oxford. And uh, one of the projects that he's involved with is to do with rhinos. And the rhino horn is prized as an aphrodisiac in parts of Asia, so that uh, rhinos are hunted and poached by people who, who kill them simply for the horn. And this project is tr- has been attempting to look at what the rhino horn is actually composed of, which is basically hair and nasal uh, stuff that acts as a kind of glue and creates this horn. Um, and they've been trying to recreate this in a laboratory using horse's hair, and and glue and uh, have succeeded but then what they've done is rather than simply manufacturing as much as this is possible and wondering what to do with it they put out the information about how to make it um, out there so that the same kind of I don't know criminal entrepreneurs who are selling the rhino horn the same kind of people 
um, will hopefully recreate this substitute and try to sell it. And that could, if that succeeds, it'll do one of two things. It'll either flood the market with something that's okay and will not hurt anyone, uh, and or B, it will make the, the rhino horn lose its mystique as an aphrodisiac. It's a very beautiful idea, and um, yeah, I think that's what I'd choose. Oh, the oak and the ivy.